Well, this morning, we're the Gospel of John, but I don't know about you. Next week, I'm looking forward to being back in the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Eric will continue his time there, and I'm looking forward to that teaching. I know you are as well. But right now, we'll be back in John chapter 15. If you take your Bible and turn there with me, John chapter 15. We'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11, but for the sake of context, we'll read starting at verse 1. John chapter 15. Lord, the word of the Lord reads, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they are gathered and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we do not endeavor to come before it and to understand it apart from the work of your spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, allow us to see great and marvelous things from your word for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Are you in spiritual danger? Are you in spiritual danger? If you were, how would you know it? How would you know if you were in spiritual danger? One person sought to answer this question. He said, one key sign of spiritual danger is losing your joy. And he begins to say, don't skim past what Paul says at the end of Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Paul reminds them to rejoice because it is safe for you to rejoice. It is good for you to rejoice. He, he continues that, that joy is one of the vital gauges on the das- dashboard of Christian life. That when the needle dips, when you lose your joy, you should take note. To stay safe, you need to pay attention to your joy. So how do you know when you're in spiritual danger? Look at your joy. Is your joy there and is it abounding? Because if it's not, that could be a sign of spiritual danger of your soul. And that's a danger that you want to take notice to. Aside from overt sin, one of the worst witnesses to the Christian life is a joyless heart. 
I mean, think about if you're watching a commercial and the eyewitness testimonies there with, with a frown on their face. Yeah, this was really great. This really helped me. It's like, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> like, like, like what, good, what good is that? Like, I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe that product is any good because I don't see the fruit of it in your life. One of the worst testimonies of a Christian life is a joyless heart. John Calvin said it this way, that there is not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. That even the single blade of grass, even the single shade of color is intended to make you rejoice. Because if you understand God, you understand true art, you understand who is the God of art. You understand who is attributed to that, and you praise him. So we ought to rejoice in God for all that he is, but even also all that he's done. It's interesting that a reoccurring purpose that Christ has throughout this whole discourse of the upper room discourse is joy. A reoccurring purpose he explicitly says is is joy. Joy for his disciples, joy for you in Christ. In this very passage we just read, verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, why? That you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He said, the reason why I'm, I'm saying these things to you is so that my joy is in you. So the joy that I have, that true lasting joy would be in you. And not only that, but it would be made full. It would be complete. It would be filled up to all its fullness. That is my desire. I want you to know these things so that your joy is abounding. So if we do not know these things, if these things are not true, then your joy would suffer. If you do not know where your home is, if you do not know the power of the Spirit of God working in you, if your word, his word is not abiding in you, you will lack in joy. But even more, go over to chapter 16. Same context here. Verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. Go down to verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be made full. Go to chapter 17, verse 13. Next chapter over. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You see a common theme here? Joy, joy, joy. He wants you to have joy all throughout this discourse. And in this passage here of the Lord speaking of the importance of you abiding in him, he begins to expand on all the blessings that come from abiding in Christ. All that is the benefits and the wealth of you abiding in Christ. He begins now to expand on what those blessings, those benefits are. Because as you abide in Christ, as as a branch into into a vine, that branch does what? Bears fruit. So yes, you will bear fruit because you're connected to the vine, But there are also personal blessings and benefits for you abiding in Christ. Now, how is abiding done? We looked at this in detail last Sunday, so if you weren't here, listen to that message. But but briefly, how is abiding done? How do we abide? If that's the central thought of this whole passage here, verses 1 through 11, how do I abide? Verse 7 gives us a little insight into that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
that we see here in verse 7, that abiding in him is used synonymously with his words abiding in us. So abiding in Christ, a good thought, a good something good to say and talk about. Yes, you should abide in Christ. But what does that mean? It really means you want to boil it down that his word should be living and remaining in you. And not just knowing it, but richly abounding in your soul. That's what abiding in Christ is. His word abides in you. And it can't be done without his word. Because remember now, Christ is talking to his disciples, and he's getting ready to leave. He knows he's leaving. They know he's leaving. And he's telling them to abide, remain in him. How? Through his word. Through his word. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? A working definition, abiding in Christ is cherishing Christ and his word in such a way that transforms your affections and your actions. Abiding in Christ is cherishing Christ and his word in such a way that transforms your affections and your actions. So now as he says, abide, 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 in verses 1 through 6, now he begins to elaborate, what are some of these benefits for you abiding in me? What are the benefits that you should know of abiding in Christ? And I love and I appreciate in Scripture so many times that God gives commands to his people to do, do, do. You should do this. But so many times in those commands, he not only tells you what to do, but he also gives you reasons to obeying. He gives you reasons to obey as if a child says, why do I have to do this? There's appropriate times. You know, I, I said so. Now go ahead and do that. But there's plenty of other times. I think as parents, we should say, it is good for you to do this. It's good for you to obey. This is actually for your, your betterment, your excel. The Bible says that you'll be blessed if you do this. And God gives so many reasons for the commands that he gives, even here. And he's giving not only the reasons, but the motivations, the benefits for you, believer, to know if you're abiding in Christ, what is all the wealth that you can reap from this? And that's what he's given here, the benefits. So let's ask, what are the benefits of abiding in Christ that produce true joy? What are the benefits that produce true joy? The first benefit is effectual prayer. Effectual prayer. Why should your prayers be effectual? Why? Look at the end of verse 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Just stop there. Like, read that again. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That God is saying, ask, and it will be done. That's a powerful, powerful promise. The command, literally the command is, ask, ask, he's saying. What's even more amazing about this is he says, if you ask, it will be done. It's going to be done. That there is indeed power in prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That there is power in your prayer. Do you believe that? If we believe that, how much more would you pray? If you really believed that. He says, ask and it will be done. Because I think when we read passages like this, we're tempted to spend more time explaining what this doesn't mean more than what it does. We tend to want to guard against, okay, now what this doesn't mean is, right? We spend more, and rightly so, right? This is not about getting your Lamborghini, okay? It's, this, this is, it's, we spend more time thinking about how does this not apply to me and to you? But really here, Christ is saying proactively ask and it will be done. So hear that. He's saying ask, pray for it whatever you wish, and it will be done. 
That is the command. James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Ask, ask, ask. Let's first understand this much. Ask, and it will be done for you, whatever you wish. Now, how do we walk in the blessing of effectual prayer? It's ensuring that whatever you wish meets two criteria. Ensuring that whatever you wish meets two criteria. And that is, your prayer is, and whatever you wish is, according to his word and for the sake of his name. That it is according to his word and for the sake of his name. Because since this type of prayer that he's talking about, it presupposes that his words are abiding in you. Because look how he begins. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's already presupposing that his words are abiding in you. It's presupposing that you are abiding in Christ richly. And so the assumption is that your wishes and that your prayers would flow out of biblical convictions. Because you're abiding in his word, because his word's abiding in you, the assumption is that your wishes now are flowing out of biblical convictions. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, delight yourself in the Lord. And what? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Because as you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart meet with his desires. And he gives those desires because they are his desires. So we are to delight in his word. And we subsequently delight to see the fulfillment and the manifestation of his word in our life and in others. So we pray according to his word. According to his word. But secondly, for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. The emphasis is on his name as opposed to whose name? Our name. My name, right? We pray for the sake of his name. As he's saying here, there's this promise of prayer here in in verse 7. It's surely related back to chapter 14, verse 13, when Jesus also says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You have to understand all that Christ is saying, not just isolated in this verse, but he's saying here, ask in my name, according to my name, and it will be done. Now, if we're honest, how much of our prayers are subtly prayed for the sake of our name, are subtly prayed for my benefit first and foremost. Lord, I I pray that you would heal me so I can have my life back to normal. Lord, would you you heal my brother over here? Because it'd be really bad if their kids didn't have a father or mother anymore. It'd be kind of, it'd be a hard situation for them. I mean, these are all true. It's not bad to pray for healing, amen and amen, but what are really we subtly really wanting for most? I just want ease and comfort. Would you just make it just easier? Would you just take this away just because, you know, I, I'm just tired of dealing with this. Right? I mean, how much subtly are we seeking to pray for our name, for my benefit? Christ is saying here, ask according to my name, for my glory. So not only according to my word, because it's living in you, but also for my glory first and foremost. So it's not bad to pray for things. Pray for, make every petition for what you wish, whatever you wish. Abide in the word for the sake of his glory. Because we can't ask with perverted motives. Because after James chapter 4 verse 2, it says in verse 3, right after that, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Why? Because you ask with wrong motives 
that you may spend it on your pleasures. So as we pray for whatever healing, provision, for whatever the blessing could be, these are not bad in and of themselves. Pray for these things. Ask for them, whatever you wish, but with the right motive, according to his word and for the sake of his name. Because if you remember here, he's talking about pruning. He's talking about abiding. And so if that is true, if I know God is pruning me, I, I know he's pruning me. He's working in me through the hardship that I'm praying for. And though it hurts, you realize this is for my good. So although this is a difficult circumstance and I'm praying for relief, I realize this is for my good. So because his word is abiding in me, I know what his word says about trials and ordeals. I know what he's desiring to do. I'll not only humbly ask for the pain to go away, but even more, I'm going to especially pray for the endurance and faith to withstand it. That I'm going to pray not just to remove it, Lord. I do pray that. But I'm going to pray, Lord, just as much that you would give me the faith and endurance to withstand this hardship you brought my way. Because I know that is in my greatest joy, whatever comes my way. So I desire the pruning to expose my weaknesses. And I ask the Lord to draw my eyes to what is true. That I realize he's promised perfect peace as we just read about in Philippians 4. I'm praying for perfect peace. I pray that I would rejoice not in things and circumstances, but in you. Lord, would you perfect my heart to love what you love? That we're praying the promises that are abiding in us. Is this your prayer? Is this your effectual prayer? That if this is true, this informs the power of your prayer. That you are praying according to his word, For the sake of his glory, knowing that your Lord said, I will do it. Do you believe that? This prayer is not just seeking for an easy life or to be free of trials, but allowing what his word says, that I realize he's going to mature me, that he's he's building reliance. He's going to give me joy. He's going to give me surpassing peace even in this so that I know my greatest joy is going to be in him and what he has for me. So from a heart that is saturating God's word, we pray according to, his, according to his word and with his glory at the forefront. William Hendrickson said it this way, that it stands the reason that a person who abides in Christ and whose heart Christ's utterances are in complete control will ask nothing that is contrary to Christ's will. For he will always ask in the spirit of, not my will, but thine be done and in complete harmony with all that Christ has revealed concerning himself. That as we pray, the, the heart that is saturated with the word of God, it's never going to ask anything that is, that is contrary to Christ's will, and it's always going to be informed of Christ's character and his desires, so that our prayers are humbly realizing that, Lord, my, not my will, but yours be done that I desire to see your glory displayed, and I will pray according to your promises that you have given in your word. That's abiding. So as we abide, it impacts our prayer. And then we pray, we pray effectually, fervently, boldly, because we realize the power of prayer that you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have peace because you have not asked. You do not have joy because your joy is elsewhere. 
that his word abides and works in us to realize that what I'm treasuring most is not what I should be treasuring most. Lord, remove this idol and let me see your glory and rejoice in pain, rejoice in suffering. Allow me to rejoice in the eternal home that you've set my eyes to. Fix my eyes there. That is my joy, my prayer. And Lord, I do pray that if it's your will, you remove this obstacle. But even if you do not, Lord, allow my soul to say it is well. So this informs your prayer life to excel beyond just praying for temporal relief, but praying for his glory according to his word. This is where abiding in the word takes flight, that we're praying God's promises in faith and trusting in them. You think about it, what makes a good attorney? If you you are on trial, you don't want a good attorney for you. How would you gauge what is a good attorney? If it were me, I want to make sure that this attorney knows the law, and he knows it well. And now he knows the law in general, but he knows even the law within the jurisdiction he's practicing that applies to my case. I want him to know my, the jurisdictional law where I am at. I want him to know it well. I want him to be able to know it so well so that he can make pleas and petitions on my behalf for my favor, for the good of the case. That's a good attorney, one who knows the law so well that he can say, no, 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 no. This is the right petition to make right here. This is the right plea to make right now. And the judge hears it and says, you know what? I'm bound to the law. That makes sense. Yes, let's apply that. That's a good attorney. In a real way that God's word should be working in us in such a way that we know it and love it and cherish it so well that we're praying affectionately by the power of the word, speaking specifically into the circumstance. So we're praying for his glory because I know the word of God so well and I cherish it and I just want to pray God's word over this. The, The good attorney doesn't appeal to his sincerity. He appeals to the law. So that as we ask whatever we wish, whatever we wish, that our wishes are worked in us through the power of the word. That your wishes are transformed and changed because of the power of the word that's abiding in you. So that you ask whatever you wish that is in line with his glory. And he does it. So pray boldly, beloved. He answers prayers. He answers your prayers. So this enables us to pray fervently and to pray boldly. Secondly, the second benefit is exalting God's glory. Exalting God's glory. Look here, believer, that the glory of God is the theme of your life. Or I should say this way, believer, the glory of God should be the theme of your life. It should be the theme of our life, that the glory of God is not only the theme of our life, but it is your greatest joy that motivates you to live in every aspect, in every area of your life. Think about it. Do you desire to glorify God in every aspect, in every area of your life? Is that the forefront of your life? That should be for us, that we should be consumed with giving God glory in everything. That is your theme. That is your anthem, the glory of God. And abiding in Christ glorifies and exalts God. Because as God is glorified, you are satisfied. As God is glorified, you are satisfied. So it's not just to glorify God because we know it's good and we should, and we should, But God's glory is where your greatest satisfaction is found. 
that God's glory is where your greatest satisfaction is found. That the joy that you've been looking for, it is found fully in the one who created you. So as he is glorified, you're satisfied that you have no other needs or desires to be met. And that's what he explains here in verse 8 in this benefit of God's glory. He says, my father is glorified by this. How is God glorified? How? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's how he's glorified. That in your abiding, you're bearing fruit. Why? Because as the, as the branch is in the vine, it abides and bears fruit. And he says, in this, the Father is glorified. So how is God glorified in your life? It's as you abide in, in him, his word abides in you. He's bearing fruit through you. And he sees that fruit. And that fruit testifies and glorifies God. And he is exalted in that. And he is exalted in that. Your greatest joy is found in that. That's why he says you're created in Christ for good works. That's why you've been created in Christ, to do good works. When you, when you look at a painting in an art gallery, you can look at the most amazing painting out there. And who's ever looked at a painting and said, wow, look at that painting. That brush must have been made out of real authentic wood, right? Man, those bristles must have been clean. Right? No, no one looks at that. You're like, man, who, who did that? Who was the author of that painting? That's what God is doing through you is he, he wants to make and work in you to be a pillar and glory, a pillar of his glory. That when people see the fruit and the works in your life, they say, wow, who is this? This is God's work. God is glorified. That the fruit in your life glorifies God. And as he is glorified, you're satisfied because that's what you've been created to do. Philippians chapter 1 verse 11 explains that you have been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you're a believer, you've been filled with these fruits by God to bring him glory. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that people see your good works and do what? Glorify your father in heaven, that you have been created to glorify God. So if I can ask you this, If there is a lack of joy in your life, if you do lack joy, are you abiding? Are you abiding? Because if you're not abiding, then there's no fruit. There's no joy. If you're in Christ, you've been created to abide in the vine. Are you abiding? Because the benefit of that is for you to abide and to bear fruit and to glorify God and to find your greatest joy and delight in that. So how can we bear much fruit unless there is much abiding within us? Because remember here, the central command is to abide. Now I also want you to hear this, that while abiding is essential, it is essential, it is also active. It's also active. And what do I mean by that? Because the fruit is the outcome, and we can't control the fruit. You can't control the growth in that that way, but you are called to actively abide and to actively pursue your growth. You're called to abide, and it's not just passive. You just remain living there, but you are called to actively pursue your growth in the faith. That there is no abiding without active pursuit. A farmer can't control the weather. He can't control the climate. But what that farmer does is he actively tills and plows and works and sweats day after day 
working and working and working so that the laws of science come into play for him. He realized there are are factors outside of his control, but that does not remove him from actively pursuing the growth of the crop. So you are to abide in Christ. We should abide in Christ, but that also means that we actively pursue the growth in Christ. You actively abide. I want to look at a picture of this in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 explains and gives a helpful picture of this. Because in verse 3, he basically says how God has given us everything for life and godliness. That when God saved you, he gave you everything that you would need to live a a holy life well-pleasing to him. There's nothing you lack in Christ. And now, from that, if, because that is true, because you have everything you need to live a, a holy, a well-pleasing life to God, because that is true, in verse 5 he says, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, this active, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. In other words, Because this is true, you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness. Now you supplement, you add, you build, you actively pursue these qualities. This is an active pursuit. Because A is true, you have been saved and given everything you need. Now you actively pursue and work out that salvation. You work it out. But even more, verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a good promise there. That if you're pursuing these qualities, perseverance, moral excellence, knowledge, so forth. If you're pursuing these, if these are yours and increasing, if you are doing this, the promise here is that you will never be unfruitful. Never. You see this active pursuit here in abiding? That if you do this, the fruit of that is you will grow in all of these areas. You pursue this and you will never be unfruitful. In verse 10, he says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about its calling and choosing you. Because as you're pursuing this, he says, make sure, confirm your election. In other words, confirm that you are born again. Because as you pursue these things and you grow in these things, this will give you the assurance of knowing, wow, I have been given everything I need for life and godliness. I am of the Lord. Why? Because I see the fruit that he's working in me, the fruit that he's producing me. And this is giving him glory. He's pleased with this. And your satisfaction is stemming from that. That there is an active act in abiding, that we are pursuing these things and growing in these things to make sure your election sure. And this is also practically done. What's one practical way we work out this? That if I know that I abide in Christ, that his word is supposed to abide and remain in me richly so that I pursue, I pursue excellence, I pursue knowledge, I pursue brotherly kindness. I'm actively pursuing these things in the word. This is also practically done in exercising your spiritual giftedness. That as you realize, as I've been created in Christ, I also realize that he has also created me for specific purposes. That he's given you specific giftings tailored just for you, gifted to you by the Holy Spirit, and you are to exercise those giftedness for the sake of his glory. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each one of you has received a spiritual gift, everyone, without exception, now with that spiritual gift, what do you do? Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So with that gift that he's given you, he says, now employ it, use it, 
for your good steward of the manifold grace of God. So, for example, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is where the active pursuit, as you're exercising, employing the gifts that God gave you to use for the benefit of the body and for the glory of his name, there is an active pursuit in actually exercising your giftedness after you're abiding in the vine, exercising your giftedness, you're also actively pursuing equally dependent upon the spirit. That your active pursuit is equally spirit. That yes, I do want to be obedient to this word. I realize I'm supposed to pursue these things in obedience and I do want to leave this out, but I also realize that I want to do it by the dependent power of the spirit. So for example, if we started a dusting ministry, that means we need, we need someone to go around the entire church and just to dust every single piece of furniture, dust every window, go everywhere and just dust. That's all you need to do, just a dusting ministry, right? If someone were to go and pursue that ministry, the idea here is that you don't just dust because, oh, this is simple. I do that all the time. I can just do that anyway. Let me just dust, dust, dust. Good, do it, do it, dust, actively dust. But I pray that as you dust, you would realize that, Lord, even this is not something I want to do in my own flesh and in my own strength and my own power. That I pray for the strength and the wisdom and the love to do it from a heart that glorifies you. That I'm not seeking to dust just because I can do it, but I want to dust to glorify your name, to serve the body, to have a clean premises. I want to do this for your glory. As simple as the illustration is, I hope we realize that, that no matter what God has given you to do, you do it dependent upon his spirit at the benefit for others for the glory of his name. So you've been created in this, my father's glorified, he says, that you bear much fruit. So actively pursue the growth as we abide and his word abides in us. Actively seek to exercise, to supplement in your faith these things. And as we do, he is exalted and you are satisfied. So no matter how small or insignificant you think your giftedness is, you do it in the reverence of God, depending upon the power of God to do it for his glory. The benefit here is God's glory. That as you do this, God is glorified. This is proof of your being a follower of Christ. It's evidence through this, which gives you greater assurance, which gives you greater motive to work even more for God's glory and for your joy. Listen here, that the believer here is, he's described as being a pillar of God's glory. That God is glorified through your life, believer. That as you abide in him, hear this promise. As you abide in him, he's saying the father is glorified in this that you bear fruit. That you are a pillar of a God's glory. That as we look at the vine, we say, wow, look at this fruit. Who is this vine dresser? Who is this God? We have to move on to the third benefit. Enjoying God's love. Enjoying God's love is another benefit of abiding in Christ. One of the rich blessings of abiding is enjoying God's love. It's enjoying God's love. This is a rich benefit because as you enjoy God's love, it boosts your confidence in him and gives you even greater joy. That this is how you experience the love of God supremely. Now, this is, 
this is maybe controversial, but it is, it's controversial in our culture, especially with the charismatic waves in our, in our country of, of, within Christianity, that people think about experiencing God's love. It's always about and emphasize the emotional aspect of experiencing God's love. That you just feel the love of God. Feel the love of God. Feel the love of God. Lift your hands. Feel the love of God. There's nothing wrong with lift your hands. But, but, but feel the love of God, right? It's all about the emotional, subjective response of feeling God's love. And the danger of that is that when you take that approach, feeling God's love becomes the launch pad of your obedience and your worship and everything. And that's dangerous. Because if you're obeying or worshiping because you feel God's love, you're already bankrupt from the start. That's backwards. But here Christ is saying here that his love is felt supremely, not in just feeling, but first of all, in doing and obeying. But even before that, look what he says in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you and abide in his love. The first thing to understand about Christ's love, it's, it's, it's objective in one sense. It's not about what you feel or what you think. If you're in Christ, his love is already done and final. It's permanent. It's not about what you feel. It's already done. So just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. But as he compares abiding in his love in verse 10, he compares that abiding to what? If you keep my commandments. If you abide in my love, if, if you keep my commandments, that abiding in Christ's love is compared with keeping his commandments. That if you keep his commandments, you abide in his love, which kind of actually makes sense. If, if Christ, if, if we have our definition of abiding in Christ, if his word is abiding in you, it's not really abiding if you're not doing it, <laughs> right? It's not abiding if you're not doing it. You're just knowing it. It's good you know his words. It's good you know Christ. But abiding in Christ means that it's cherishing so much so it's changing your affections and and your actions. And so he's saying, if if you love me, if you keep my commands, then you will abide in my love. And when we think of keeping his commands, he says here, what I think we tend to think of is keeping his commands means, okay, yes, I do keep his commands. I I don't steal. I don't hate. I don't murder. I, I, I don't do this. I don't do that. I, I keep his commands. Now, that's involved in it, right? You don't do those things. That is involved in keeping his commands. But it also inver- involves what we should do, what we do do, right? Keeping his commands. And what is that that we do do? Verse 12. We're not going to look at this this week, but this is an example. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. His commandments are not just a list of prohibitions, but also that you love, that you do. That's just one example, that his commandments are not just the 10 commandments, but he's saying, my word that I've given you. Do you guard, do you keep my commandments? That's what he's talking about, that if you're abiding in my love, you'll keep my commandments, all of them, even to love one another. And this keeping here is literally a guarding, in other words. You can say, he who guards my commandments. It's not just a checklist of right and wrongs, but this is the idea of guarding his commandments. You think of the Bill of Rights that we have. We love, and, or at least we should love and appreciate the Bill of Rights as citizens. Man, and it's not just something we just want to keep and observe, but we should really guard the Bill of Rights because we realize why, how good they are. The purpose of them. 
It's not just to keep someone just from doing wrong, right? Although it involves that. But we realize the purpose of the Bill of Rights is really to guard the, the freedoms that, 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 are, that are self-evident, that are given by God. We want to guard these things. That's the idea of keeping his commandments is not just doing right to wrong, but no, no I want to guard his word. That if I guard and keep them so much that it impacts what I do and how I live, he says, you will abide in my love. So as his word abides in you and it transforms you and you keep it and you obey it and you walk in it, he says, you're abiding in my love. That he's equating obedience with his love. That you can't have a love for God if that abiding does not manifest in obedience. That this is the keeping, the guarding. That he commands you to abide in my love and enjoy all the benefits thereof. So how do we do that? By joyfully obeying his word. He's, he's emphasizing the inseparable unity of love and obedience in which we're called to partake. That you can't say you love Christ if you don't obey him. First John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk himself in the same manner in which he walked. Right? You can't say you abide in him if you're not walking in the same manner in which you walked. That's just a lie. Now, we should, I know, maybe not should, but we do often crave a, 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 maybe a, a subjective supernatural experience with the Lord. I understand that. that there are times where, yeah, I, I understand it's not about my emotions, but, you know, I, I do want to feel that response. I do want to feel Christ's love. That's not a bad desire. But the Lord would say here that if you, want to, if you want that love, it flows out of your abiding in him. And in many cases, as we abide in him in obedience and his word transforms us, in many times that subjective feelings of, of Christ's love does come. As you realize and, and obey his word, those subjective feelings do come. They're not bound to that. But if you want to start to feel Christ's love, start where he starts with obedience. Start where he starts. One person said this way that righteous obedience is the key to experiencing God's blessing. That's the key. So pursue obedience. Now be energized in this also by by following the example that Christ gave in verse 10. So what's the example in in following his commands in verse 10? Well, look what he says. If If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Key words there. Next two words, just as, what? Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. What's your example? He's saying, keep my commandments just as I have kept the father's commandments. That he has done the same thing. That he has kept his father's commandments. He led or he is leading by example. He said in the chapter before this in verse 31, chapter 14, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, what? I do exactly as the Father commanded me. He's describing here a unity and will and unity and will and purpose within the Godhead. That they are unified in this purpose. And though Christ is equal in essence, there is a functional distinction in relationship where the Son willingly submits to the Father, not out of inferiority or coercion, but in perfect harmony. That this is one God, one will. And he's saying here, I submit lovingly, voluntarily, I submit to the Father. That just as I've submitted and kept his commands, he's now commanding you, do the same thing. That Christ is your example in this. 
And specifically, when Christ says in verse 10 that as I have kept my father's commandments, this keeping here is in reference to his own obedience in his life on earth. That this whole time on earth, he kept the father's commandments from beginning to even then. That he kept the the father's commandments perfectly. He lived an obedient life in all areas. That he never once violated the command of God. That he himself kept the father's commands perfectly. So much so that it involved Christ willingly laying down his life for the flock. That Christ, in keeping the commands of the Father, it also involved that he would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that Christ willingly drank the cup of bitter wrath for those who would believe upon him. That he, he, he shows the fact that I was obedient, that I will drink the cup of wrath that you should drink. That the cup of wrath that should be poured upon every single soul because of disobedience to God's law, Christ said, no, I will take that wrath and I will die the perfect death and I will rise again for the sake of every single soul who looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ and sees and beholds him as Lord. He says, just as I've done this, as I've been obedient to the Father, now you be obedient to my word. And you do that, you abide in my love. You abide in my love. That we submit to him, realizing here that ultimately what he laid down, his obedience, what he did ultimately, man, that enables us to live an obedient life. Because he, he, he died once and for all, and, and scripture says that we're united with him in his death. And so the reason why you can live an obedient life perfectly, he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Why? Because it's bound to Christ's power, his resurrecting power. The reason why you can live an obedient life is because of what he has accomplished on your behalf. And because that is true now, he's saying, now walk in my commandments. Be obedient and abide in my love. It's not just about the rights and wrongs. It's not just about a religious system. But now abide in a love that exists within the Godhead. That there's a perfect love and harmony. And now abide in that love. That as you abide in obedience, you're abiding in that divine love. And that is a good promise. Don't settle for anything less. That these, these, are, these are rich benefits. That your Christ should produce joy in your heart. That this should produce an abounding joy in your life. That abiding in Christ is not just something for the upper echelon Christians. Abiding in Christ is is, is for every single believer. Now hear this now. This is not just something you can just take and leave as a buffet. Abiding in Christ is what he's commanding every single believer to abide and remain in him. Allow his word to take residence in your life so that it changes your affections and your life and your greatest benefit, your greatest blessing, your greatest joy is found in you abiding. Is his word abiding richly in you? Because the benefits that he promised here is effectual prayer, exalting God. That this is enjoying his love. These benefits here, when you hear that believer, that this is how the true believer acts when they hear that. When you hear these benefits, the believer says, yes, I want more of that. I do want that. That is not perfect in my life right now, but I want to grow in that. That's how the child of God hears this. But if you hear those things, and that does nothing for you, that you don't, okay, enjoying God's love, 
uh, effectual prayer, exalting God, if that does nothing for you, then hear this right now if you're in this room. Consider if you're a part of the vine. Because God's word gives you new affections. If you have no affections to glorify God, to pray effectually, to exalt him, to enjoy his love, if you have no desire in that, it may be because you are not a part of the vine. And here's a point right now where you hear that message and also hear that this same Christ said, I will drink the bitter cup of wrath. So that if you turn now to Christ, realizing what he did on the cross, he will take your sin upon himself, give you his perfect righteousness and enable you to want and to live out all of the glorious truths in this chapter. This is what we should walk and live in. May we be a church that is known for abiding in Christ not just a Bible church that knows the word and knows how to refute false doctrine, but also a church that loves the word, to love the word, to love it. Because we know it's divine author and we want to walk in the glory of his name. So therefore we pray with boldness that we are content with nothing less than feasting off his glory and that we enjoy the surpassing knowledge of God's love. That should be our anthem. so that we are filled up to all the fullness of God. May your joy be found in abiding in your Savior. There is no greater joy than allowing his word to transform and to shape you for his glory and for his name. Father, Father, how good it is for us to hear from your word that these are not our words. God, this is you. Lord, I pray you would work this work in us, that this morning, that you would strengthen the body, that we would be known for our love for your word because we love Christ. And Lord, we can't love you apart from your word. So Lord, I pray that your word would take residence in the body of this church, that we would walk in the fullness, enjoy it, that we would feast upon it because we realize it's from you. So Lord, may we reap these benefits and enjoy these benefits and that you would be glorified much from this local body. God, I pray this, asking that you would do this by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.